Um, we've been kind of going through this uh, road to the cross. If we can get the lights uh, up again. There, just want to be able to see you better. All right, uh, we've been going through this, this road to the, the cross over the last couple of weeks, uh, highlighting some of the teachings that Jesus taught his disciples over the last months of his ministry before, before the cross. Today, we're going to continue that journey, but we're going to be switching. We've been in the Gospel of John primarily, and now we're going to be switching and looking at some uh, a passage in Matthew. So um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 20, um, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, we'll have verses on the screen too, but we're going to be reading a pretty big chunk. So if you want to turn there to follow along in your Bibles or in a Bible app, you can do that. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, uh, we started the study, and it was fall. It was about five months before the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus had just healed a blind man, um, and he gave an illustration kind of illuminating the difference between himself and the religious leaders of the day. He described himself as the good shepherd. Unlike the Pharisees of the day that seemed to have contempt for the sick and for the poor, Jesus loved them and he wanted to provide for them, he wanted to protect them, and he wanted to save them. We looked at what it meant for us to be part of Jesus' flock, to be part of the good shepherd's flock and how we find peace and protection and provision when we follow him, when we walk where he leads us. We also saw that he's not just a good shepherd, but he is the good shepherd. Uh, we can find everything we need in him. The well-known Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. I, I have no want. There's no need to follow another shepherd. He's the only shepherd that we need. Last we, lastly, we looked at how Jesus said that he is faithful even unto death. And, and, and death won't even stop him. John 10 18, Jesus says, No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want and also to take it up again, for this is what my Father has commanded. Nothing can stop our good shepherd. So that was two weeks ago. Then last week, we, we moved ahead about two months, two or three months later in time, when we find... Um, Jesus is, is with the disciples and he, he hears word that Lazarus has died and then Lazarus, or actually that Lazarus was sick and he ended up dying and he was buried for four days. And even though Jesus recognized the suffering in this, he was not shaken by it. Uh, he even, he wept by it with those who, who grieved. He saw the pain in the loss, but he was not shaken by it. When he first heard the news that, that Lazarus was sick, he actually, he said that Lazarus' sickness will not result, it will not end in death. Not res, it will not end in death. It says that it, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. He knew that the Father had a plan to use Lazarus' death to cause many to believe. Jesus, before even raising Lazarus from the dead, he made a confession uh, or a declaration where he said that I am the resurrection and the life. And then in raising Lazarus from the dead, he demonstrated that he has the power behind the promise. He has the power behind the promise. He has authority over death, even not just for himself, but for others. Um, so those who have trust in Jesus have the hope of resurrection in him. Jesus said in John 11, through 26, it says, he said that I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. 
Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. So that's, that's where we've been. Now we're moving forward today. So from, from the time that Jesus resurrected Lazarus, um, it, which was late winter, and then until the time that we find ourselves today, which is probably in March or early April at the latest, um, Jesus is with his disciples and he's been teaching them. He's been delivering people. He's been healing people all the way up to Capernaum, uh, which if you were traveling, traveling from Bethany all the way up to Capernaum, that would be um, about a five-day walk. Um, and, and I don't know that they went straight through. They, they may have paused a few times. The, the Mount of Transfiguration happened on their way from, from Bethany up to Capernaum. Um, they stayed there for a, for a short time ministering. I don't know exactly how long. And then they came all the way back down to the area just east of the Jordan River, which is w- approximately where they were when they first got news that Lazarus was sick. So they've kind of went up and over and around, and now they're actually heading back, completing the circle. Um, they're going to be heading towards Jerusalem. Um, so they're, they're again, they're about a two-day walk from Jerusalem. They're on their, their way there. They're somewhere between uh, where they had settled by the Jordan and Jericho. Uh, but this time they had more company. They, they, it wasn't just Jesus and the disciples. They'd picked up many followers along the way. Um, when they left Capernaum, it said that a large crowd had followed him as he left and, and headed down towards Judea. <clears throat> so today we're picking up the story again. This is a couple weeks before the cross um, where we find Jesus and his disciples and this large crowd of fo- followers heading towards Jerusalem. Some of the travelers were with him because they wanted to hear his teaching. They, wanna, they wanted to see what, uh, what healings he might do. But there were other travelers just going down the road that were headed towards Jerusalem because Passover was coming and they wanted to make preparations for it. Um, so as they're walking, uh, we, we get a little clue. So most of this reading is going to be from Matthew, but we got a few uh, insights from some other of the Gospels because this is covered in, in three of the different Gospels. Uh, Mark says this about the emotions of those who are making this trip. Um, it says that those who are with Jesus... Um, on this last trip to Jerusalem, Mark 10.32 says, The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Now, this seemed kind of strange to me as people who are hanging out with Jesus, that they would have fear. Um, and, then, and then you remember what, you know, what happened you know, in Jerusalem and kind of why they left. Jesus had, had raised Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees had gotten really worked up about it. Um, in fact, it says that they, they started to plot to kill Jesus. And, and in the past, they'd, they'd picked up stones to kill him before, so this was nothing new, but it, it seemed like it was intensifying. And, and so this is why Jesus had stopped doing ministry in Jerusalem and, in, and had headed out of town up towards Capernaum. Um, so now... News was spreading that Jesus was a wanted man. Okay, so we, we see this in John eleven fifty five through 57. It says, It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and many people from all over the country had arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. They kept looking for Jesus. But as they stood around the temple, they said to each other, What do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? Meanwhile, the leading priests 
had made a public order. They, they had publicly ordered that anyone who saw Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest him. So Jesus is a wanted, wanted man at this point. And, uh, and so there's, the disciples were filled with awe and the others were, were filled with fear, um, but yet they still followed. They still followed, even, not, even with this unsurety, even with a little bit of this fear. And at first I thought this was kind of strange that they would, they, they would keep on following even though they're afraid. But it kind of made me think of like a, when a storm is coming, you know, and you're, you know, you're supposed to take shelter, um, you know, tornado warnings or whatever, um, get away from the windows and whatnot. But, you, you know, even though you're, you're a little afraid about what might happen, you find yourself standing in front of the window, in front of the patio door, watching, because um, even though you can't do anything to stop it, you're, you're in a little bit of awe of it, of the, the power of it, of what's going to happen, and, and you want to see what is going to become of it all. And so here we find Jesus um, coming, headed towards Jerusalem, towards this danger, and the disciples and the crowds know that the Jewish leaders don't like him. They know that the, the Romans in the past haven't taken too kindly to um, revolutionaries rising up. So as Jesus comes and he's leading a, a large group of followers into town, is that how they're going to see him? Are they going to see him as a revolutionary? Um, you know, they, the, the Romans have taken care of that in the past. They've, they've ended those sorts of things without a lot of mercy. And so they're wondering what is going to become of this. But Jesus is different. He's different than these other leaders. He, uh, he doesn't just come as a powerful teacher who preaches hope and, and freedom from oppression, but he also confirms the hope, confirms the, 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 the kingdom to come by displaying the power of God. Through him, they've seen signs and wonders. They've seen the lame walk, the blind see, uh, they've seen the dead arise at his command. They are awestruck. They're, they're conflicted between fear and hope and amazement. So as they're traveling towards Jerusalem, towards those who desire to harm him, Jesus calls his disciples and kind of pulls them apart from the crowd. And so imagining I'm one of the disciples and I'm walking with Jesus and, and all this is kind of, these are the feelings going on in the crowd around me. <clears throat> I'm kind of hoping that in this huddle, he's going to uh, kind of tell me what the game plan is. You know, give me a little bit of optimism of how we're going we're gonna to get into Jerusalem. We're going to teach. There's going to be some healing. And then we're going to escape as they've done in the past. But this was not going to be like the past trips into Jerusalem. This wasn't going to be like the other times. On several occasions, Jesus had told them that he was going to lay down his life, that he was going to willingly sacrifice himself. But they seemed either unwilling to accept it or, or maybe they, they just were hoping that maybe they didn't hear it the way, you know, maybe, they, maybe he didn't mean it the way they heard it. Maybe he meant something different. They're kind of holding on to hope. Um, but this time Jesus, uh, as we read in Matthew, we're going to find that he's, he's going to tell them in detail exactly what is going to happen. So now looking to Matthew 20, verse 17 through 19, it says, As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and to the teachers of religious law. 
they will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. So I have to say, if I, again, if I were one of the disciples and I'm following, um, and I'm feeling nervous hearing all this chatter around me, this fear around me, this isn't exactly the pep talk that I'm looking for. Uh, this sounds bad. Now, granted, that last sentence has some, some hope in it, but I'm not sure that they even really heard that last sentence. I don't know if they, if they really recognized or, or, or internalized what he said at that last part. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation before where that, that first sentence that somebody says, they drop this like information bomb and your brain is just like, what? You know, and they keep talking, but your mind is like on that first sentence. I, I kind of think that maybe that's what's happening here. Um, Jesus starts off by saying that he's going to be betrayed. And I can only imagine that some of them are like, their, their mind is just like off to the side and they're, they're thinking, wait, 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 did, did he just say he's going to be betrayed? Who? Why? When is this going to happen? Is, is, it, is there something we can do to stop them? Um, did, did he already move on to the next part? It kind of seems like there should be more about this betrayal thing, right? Seems like we should address this. But Jesus had continued on to the next part. Um, next, he says that Jesus is going to be captured, and you know, there goes some more. Anybody who, was, who, who caught this next part is thinking, man, uh, really? Like, I was nervous about this, you know, because of all the chatter, but but in the past, we've always got away. We've always escaped. Then he starts talking about how not only is he going to be betrayed, and, and not only is he going to be captured, but he's going to be sentenced to die. He's going to be tortured, and he's going to be crucified. Have you ever seen in a movie where like a bomb explodes next to somebody and then people like run up to him and they're trying to help him and they can't really hear what they're saying. They see their lips moving. Everything's a little blurry, but they're not really taking it all in until they finally kind of snap out of it. Um, that's kind of how I picture this moment. They just heard that their, their leader, their, their Jesus, was going to be crucified. Crucified. And I think that, that when I think of it this way, when I think of how these are all kind of like big things that are distracting their train of thought and how could you take all of this in at once, it, it helps me kind of understand what Luke says when he kind of gives a little bit of insight on what's happening here. Luke says in, in chapter 18, he says, but they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words were hidden from them. They failed to grasp what he was talking about. So I, I don't know if, if it was just too much too quick um, or if it conflicted too much with what they hoped would happen, but they, they just couldn't grasp it. And I'm, I'm glad that Luke gives us this insight because if he hadn't, uh, we would have been left to assume that, that they did get what Jesus said because he said it in such detail. He said it clearly, this this, this, like exactly what's going to happen in order. Um, and we would have assumed that they must have understood it. How could you not? It's written all out there in front of us. Um, but, but that's not how they took it in. They, they, it, was, it was a lot, and, and they, they just couldn't place it all. 
And so because they couldn't, um, it kind of makes this next part that we're going to read make a lot more sense. Um, because otherwise, if they understood it, uh, this seems like a weird thing to do or to say. So moving ahead into Matthew 20, verses 20 through 22, it says, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't know what you're asking of me. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. So a couple things to unpack here. First, we see that their mom is making the request. So it kind of makes you wonder, you know, whose idea was this? Was this uh, James and John, but they thought their mom would be a better spokesperson, that you'd have a better chance getting, you know, the, the answer that they wanted from Jesus? Or was it mom's idea and she kind of drugged the boys along? I mean, James and John at this point could have been in their late teens or early 20s. I mean, at their youngest, maybe they were older than that, but they, they could have been that young. So maybe their mom thought, you know, they would, she would kind of help them out, kind of help elevate them in this new kingdom that is to come. Um, but regardless of who really initiated the conversation, Jesus responds to James and to John, and he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? And they respond, oh, yes, we are able. It, it just, it's like, what? <laughs> now, this is where you, where you have to look back to that verse in Luke. And this is why I'm thankful for the, loose, the verse in Luke where it says they failed to grasp what he was talking about because he had just detailed um, his torture and his death. And they're like, sure, sign me up. Like, that, that doesn't seem likely. It seems clear that they didn't quite have the pieces put together of what he was explaining to them in their, in their little huddle earlier. So um, Jesus continues his response and he gives them a very sobering prophecy where he says to them in verse 23, says, Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. James and John are being told in advance that they will learn what it means to suffer for Christ. James specifically, we know, uh, ends up being beheaded. He's martyred for the faith. Well, John will endure other forms of punishment and he'll, he'll suffer um, imprisonment. And according to church history, they even try and boil him in oil. Um, they are going to learn what it means to suffer for Christ. But beyond the fact that they... They didn't really understand what they were asking. Beyond the, the prophecy, that appears that they, they still were thinking of Jesus' kingdom as, as like an earthly kingdom. You know, they've seen kings in the past. They've seen what it looks like. They're still trying to find this, this earthly place of sitting next to him. They're not recognizing that Jesus is going to sit on a heavenly throne. This is, this is beyond their understanding at this point. And they're attempting to they're acting kind of outside of what kingdom principles are. Um, kingdom principles aren't about 
trying to beat others out to the higher position. And that's what they're doing. They're trying to beat the others out so they can get this high position of power and prestige. Now, you've, you've probably heard that Jesus holds a threefold office. He, he holds the office of prophet, priest, and king. So up to this point, he's been recognized widely by people as being a prophet, that he is speaking God's word with power and with knowledge. Um, and in a week, he's going to be welcomed into, into Jerusalem as king. We're going to see large crowds of people um, singing and shouting praise to him, saying, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But today, Jesus is trying to show them that he's going to Jerusalem to serve as a priest above all priests. That he's going to make a final sin offering for all people, for all times. That he's going to do what no other has ever been able to do before. He's going to pour out his own life as the perfect, eternal, atoning sacrifice for sin. And these brothers, James and John, and their mom, they're missing the point. The kingdom is not about reaching for high position of power. It's about becoming like Christ, offering your life in love and in service for others. So um, this isn't really new to James and John. They've, they've heard this message before, but it just hasn't sunk in. Um, in fact, this principle of putting others above yourself was just talked about possibly even just earlier this day, as they were traveling, there was a rich young man along the road, um, and Jesus had a conversation with him where he told him to go and sell all of his possessions and then give the money to the poor, and that then he'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And then after, after this happens and the, the rich man leaves sad because he has much to give um, and he doesn't want to lose his wealth, Jesus explains to the disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then it continues in verse 28, and it says, this is Mark 10, 28, <clears throat> then Peter uh, began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive and return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life, but many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So James and John didn't get it. They were still chasing after greatness. Um, they wanted greatness here on earth. But in their defense, that's the way the world is, right? That's what they're familiar with. That's how their brains are wired. Before Jesus came along, um, somebody who's powerful choosing to serve the weak was not something that they saw in practice. It wasn't lived out by their fellow Jews. It wasn't displayed by the religious leaders who are supposed to be the examples to the community at large. This is something that was going to have to take some sinking in. It was going to take some time for it to replace their old way of viewing life. Their minds had to be transformed by the hearing of God's word 
and meditating on it so that they could remove the corrupt way of thinking that was instilled in their minds. It's the same process that we work through. It's the same process that, that we use. That's why we're here today, right, is to hear God's word so that we can start to, little by little, put kingdom practices, God's kingdom practices, into our minds and not live according to the old way that has kind of been established or, or that we get kind of accustomed to or affected by when we, we're out in the world and we see how everybody else lives and it kind of uh, starts to change us, starts to try and form us into a different way of thinking. But we want to hear the word of God so that our minds can be transformed and renewed into kingdom principles. But uh, James and John, they're about to experience uh, one of the downfalls of trying to chase after uh, prestige, trying to elevate yourself above the people around you, which is um, that the people around you, when they find out what you're up to, are not very happy about it. So that's exactly what happens next. Uh, Jesus again calls the disciples out of the crowd, pulls them aside, and he tells them what the kingdom of God is really like. We find in Matthew 20, verse 24 through 28, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came to be, not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listening to Jesus as he lays out so plainly the, the evil of the world's way of operating, it kind of almost makes you feel a little dumb for not seeing it sooner. Uh, but we just kind of get accustomed to the ways. It becomes normal to the point where it almost seems right. But Jesus is saying, look around. Look at the, the way the world operates. What, what's the result of the world's way of operating? There's um, pride. There's oppression. The rulers are lording over others. The officials are flaunting their power and their authority. Does that sound good? Does that sound like the kingdom that I've been talking about? Does that sound like my teaching? Um, no, of course not. It, Jesus does not come to the world so that he can do the world system better. He came so that he could flip the world system upside down, so that he could show that there's a completely different way to live, that the greatest will become the least, and the least will become the greatest, and the leaders will become servants, and those who want to be great will become slaves. Uh, Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. I'm going to start at verse 1. It says, Is there any encouragement? Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, pause for a second. I'm, I'm going to actually mention this again later, but just for some backdrop, um, Paul is, is writing this from prison, and, and he's experiencing joy in his suffering, in his situation that he's in. So <clears throat> he's responding to, he's telling the Philippians, Do you have any uh, joy? Is there any joy or any encouragement? from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. 
Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of himself think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in, the, in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the, high, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a lot to take in. <clears throat> but the, the first uh, thing that it starts with is, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Paul is, like I said, he's writing this from prison. He talks in the chapter before this verse about how he is experiencing joy even in the midst of chains. He's asking, have you experienced Jesus the way I'm experiencing him right now? Has he changed in your life what seemed like suffering into reason and opportunity for joy? If you've experienced that, if so, follow Christ's example and show that same kind of sacrificial love that Christ showed to us, show it to others. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. The world system flipped upside down. It's, it's not a, uh, a checklist of things to do. We see some don'ts and do's in here, but it's not really about the legalistic following of the rules. Uh, you know, number one, don't be selfish. Number two, don't try to impress others. Three, be humble. Four, take interest in others. Um, it's not about knowing these things and forcing yourself into these actions. It's not a bad thing to do these things. It's not bad to do that, but it's really about our hearts responding to the impact that Christ has had on our own lives. It says, um, or it, rather it doesn't say that we're supposed to have the same actions as Christ. It's not, it, it actually says that we're supposed to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. The actions become a result of having experienced Christ and becoming, uh, having the same attitude as Christ. So have we experienced encouragement from belonging to Christ? Have we experienced comfort from his love, fellowship together with his spirit? And then through Christ's love experience, our hearts are made tender and compassionate towards others. And having received that kind of love, we're then able to pour it out on others, not as uh, following a checklist, but we become just humble servants. It becomes something that just uh, bears natural fruit, uh, that's, that's born out of hearts that are united with Christ and that are filled with the Holy Spirit. It just grows. It's like an, like an apple tree producing apples, right? I, mean, I think I've used this example before. It, it just happens. It the, the tree doesn't have to try. It's an apple tree. It produces apples. Uh, we see Jesus using this example um, in Matthew 12. He'd been told by the Pharisees, uh, they were claiming that he was uh, driving out demons by the power of Satan. And, and uh, Jesus is responding to them. And he says, uh, a tree is identified by its fruit. 
If the tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes, how could you evil men, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things out of the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things out of the treasury out of, of an evil heart. An apple tree bears apples. A Christian that's filled with the same attitude of Christ, which is kind of part of the definition of being a Christian, is that we're filled with Christ and that we're, we have his attitude flowing out of us. We bear the same kind of fruits that Christ bears. We're, a, we're like a Christ tree, if you want to, if you, so to speak. You know, what, what do you find? What did we see in Christ? That's what we are displaying on our branches. Um, the fruit that we display is of humble sacrifice um, and of service to others, putting others' interest above our own. I, I just, I love how Philippians 2.1 challenges us to ask ourselves these questions. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit? Are there any hearts, are your hearts tender and compassionate? I feel like sometimes we have to take that inventory of the goodness that God has shown us so that we, we remember, so that we remember what we've experienced so that we can pour it back out again. Um, how many times have you been encouraged through your life by Jesus? How many times have, has life been tough and you felt encouragement from Jesus? How many times have you experienced comfort in the midst of grief or in pain? How often have you received wisdom or direction through the Spirit or, or companionship when you felt alone? Have we allowed Christ's goodness towards us, all these things that he's done for us through the past um, and, and even really in each day if we stop to realize what he's offering us every day, have we allowed it to shape our hearts? If so, let's take what he's done for us, let's take that example of, of him giving us encouragement and comfort and, and friendship and let's take that into the kingdom, out, out in the world, sharing these, these are, this is kingdom principles. This is acting differently than other people. This is, this is sacrificing when people wouldn't normally sacrifice or serving when, when people wouldn't normally serve. This is going out of the way for people who maybe you don't even have a close relationship with, uh, but you're going you're gonna to serve anyway. Um, nothing for you to get out of it, but just to give because we've received when we didn't deserve anything. Um, so as we uh, stand and we sing this last song, I, I just want to challenge us, just remember what has God done for you? How has he encouraged you? How has he comforted you? How has he befriended you? And, and then how can we uh, give that same sort of love expressed through our lives to those around us? Lord Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you for all of the provisions, protection, Lord, everything that you've offered us as the good shepherd. We thank you that you have comforted us when we needed comfort, that you've friended us when we need a, needed a friend, Lord. Lord, we just ask that 
um, you'd help us as we, as we walk this road towards Easter, as we're remembering that you are the good shepherd, as we remember that you are the resurrection and the life, and we remember that you being the king of kings laid down your life for us. Lord, that you would teach us, that you would um, show us how to uh, live out your kingdom principles, that we wouldn't be conformed or, or um, driven by, by the way the world works around us, Lord, but that we would show your love, your grace, your mercy to those around us, that those who don't know you, those who haven't experienced you yet, who haven't offered you into their hearts so they could uh, experience it from you, Lord, that we can be your representatives. We can show them what you offered to us so that then they can go to the source and get it directly from you. Lord, help us to be servants of you, surrendered, um, humble, and willing to uh, put others above ourselves, able to see their needs. Lord, help our eyes to be open to see needs and to meet them with the, the fruit that you've shown us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Go today in the power of the Holy Spirit, serving others in the name of Jesus Christ to bring glory to God. Amen.